Welcome to Church of the Geek podcast listeners. This is Brian. Uh, Tonight we are having a conversation with Andy Walsh. Uh, uh, Before we do that, Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Brian. And uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for for some time and been uh, parsing through Andy's book, which I am thankful that I got on pre-release and uh, it's been it's it's been a real interesting interesting book I think we're gonna have a great conversation yeah yeah I agree uh, why don't you introduce uh, Andy since you two uh, actually know each other IRL why don't you um, <laughs> why don't you uh, introduce Andy for us please yeah I'll introduce um, Andy is a, a friend of mine we both go to uh, the same church here in Pittsburgh and uh, both attended the same uh, small group for a while and have uh, kind of been involved with a number of different things. And uh, I actually remember when this uh, book was sort of in its early phases, he taught a, like a little, I guess you could call it like an adult Sunday school class, about as close as we get to a Sunday school class at our church, where um, you could see he, that some of the ideas that he was working on were getting fleshed out and kind of became chapters in the book. Um, but I'll let Andy talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what he does and his background and uh, maybe tell us what kind of brought you to write this book. All right. Hi. So my background, so I work for a public health software company. Uh, I've been doing that for just about 10 years now. Uh, provide a service to public health departments called syndromic surveillance. So we're using electronic health data to just try to keep an eye on, on population health at a population level uh, and help public health departments identify issues where they um, might need to be involved. And I got into that from a background in both public health and biology and applying statistical analysis to biology. So I have a background in uh, studying statistics and biology at a school of public health for grad school for a PhD. And before that was a biology student um, and the book uh, kind of came out of my interest in various uh, different science areas. Uh, so I've you know, kind of worked across different disciplines in uh, math and biology and computer science. Um, and also have an interest in theology and Christianity and trying to express all of that in a way that uh, makes sense in the context of uh, how I see the world scientifically or how I see the world uh, through science. And I'm also a big uh, fan of, you know, sci-fi and, and nerdy pop culture. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of put all that together and share sort of how I think about uh, all those different things uh, in a way that I hope is interesting and, and a little bit different uh, so that folks might find it uh, helpful to them. That's really cool. Um, 
the, the whole notion of going through all that and then just going through all this just because it's uh, something that uh, could help other people just sort of think about things. Uh, I, I love that. So um, how um, did I, did I read this right? You, uh, you put something on Twitter. This was basically six years in the, in the making. Yeah. So almost exactly six years ago, I came across a contest for a book publishing, basically. Uh, you had to submit a proposal for a book, and they were going to pick a winner to, to actually get published. And I had been kicking around some ideas on how to talk about uh, my Christian faith in terms of different uh, scientific metaphors. And so I thought, all right, well, maybe this is a good excuse to start writing some of them down and seeing if it even looks like a book. Um, and so, you know, I didn't really expect to win the contest because I hadn't really done a lot of writing on those kinds of topics before, but I thought it was a good excuse to get started. So I put together a submission. I wrote down a sample, what was supposed to be a sample chapter it was probably about a quarter of one of the chapters in the final book. Um, and, you know, a much uh, different version of, of the idea, but, the length of it is probably about a quarter of one of the chapters. Uh, and then an outline for what the whole book would look like. And when I was all done with that, I said, oh, that does kind of look like a vaguely book-shaped kind of thing. And have been working on fleshing out that outline and then figuring out what to do with it uh, in the time since. All right. It's... um. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not exactly the same. But many folks I've uh, talked with have talked about it, sort of akin to a pregnancy. Um, was it a Was it a difficult uh, uh, process? So the actual, you know, putting it all together was uh, went easier than I thought. So probably over a period of about four to six months, once I finally um, decided that I was going to do it, I was able to put together. Uh, first draft, you know, and that was, you know, right, making sure that I was writing every day. Uh, there were times we actually took uh, road trips and I was actually writing like on a laptop with a, you know, power adapter plugged into a little, uh, little power input uh, output in the car uh, while my wife drove so that I could get my writing in for that day. Um, so it was, it was intense and it was busy, but, but it uh, came together well and it was really helpful to finally be able to put it all down uh, on paper. Um, and then the, the challenging part was figuring out, okay, now that I've written it, who wants to do something with it? Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, sending it out to different places, talking to different people, waiting a long period of time for other people to, to make a decision. Um, that was the waiting was probably the hardest part, which I actually maybe is like a pregnancy. Cause I understand that that can be, uh, the most challenging part there sometimes as well is. Yes. Yes. Let's not, let's, let's have three guys talk about pregnancy and difficulties. That so, always goes yeah. so well. Uh, <laughs> goes really well. Really? It's not that bad, right? Yeah. It's not. Shut up, Brian. Um, that's, that's great. Well, you know what I realized? We've been talking about the book. Um, we haven't actually told people what it's called. So um, tell us what it's uh, called. Sure. It's called Faith Across the Multiverse. And now you see why it maybe took so long to find somebody to publish it. Cause I'm not that great at promotion. 
<laughs> but yeah, well, it, well, we know it because you know we've been reading it, and um, it is uh, uh, it. Uh, what I love, it's. I mean, despite okay, the chapter on number theory, folks might get in the weeds a little bit, um, but I think you write pretty accessibly. I think it's really. Um, I, I, I think it's uh, a lot of folks could pick it up if folks are thinking about these kind of um, uh, ideas, I think they're going to be able to understand your book. So, and, and I think too, the, the subtitle is parables from modern science. And one thing I, I found about the book that I do appreciate is that it's kind of each chapter in a way is its own little parable. And you don't necessarily have to read just like the parables, you don't have to read them or understand them necessarily in order. They can each kind of be their own, you know, distinct idea concept. And so, you know, you can, you can kind of look through a particular, you know, look through the index and see something that jumps out at you. And it's like, Oh, um, there's, there's a chapter on, on Kamala Khan. That looks really interesting. I and mean, then you could just jump right into that one. And there are bits and pieces that might tie into other material in the book, but you don't necessarily, it doesn't build on itself in that way, um, which makes it, you know, you know, I think, you know, more accessible to, um, to folks that kind of, you know, I might be more, you know, that could be intimidated by something like number theory or others that might be intimidated by, you know, big sections on biology, but at the same time, those sections are very, um, very well written and, you know, explained and can come down to, uh, you know, come down to a level where, you know, you can be, you can understand it and then apply it to a number of different things. Um, and I think in the same way too, in that, you know, each one of these is in, in many ways a parable that is written to show something about God from the natural world, being the natural world of numbers, the natural world of physics, the natural world of, you know, biology and and cells and that kind of thing, uh, which can illuminate some of the parables that we already know and some, you know, passages that we already know, passages about light and and so on, but then also can understand those things in new ways and add some new metaphors to our discussion. Yeah, and, and I think that also you know touches on one of the reasons why there's uh, the various comic book and, and science fiction story references as well. So you know both science and theology or, or Christianity can get fairly abstract, and I think that's one of the reasons why people find it intimidating is because it's abstract, because it's based on scales of experience that aren't the normal everyday human scales, right? So a lot of the biology we do these days is microscopic and a lot of physics we do these days is either, you know, subatomic or astronomical. Um, and so that, that leads to abstraction. And so that's why I wanted to introduce each concept with a story that hopefully is familiar to some of the readers, but even if it's not familiar, it provides a more human scale introduction to whatever the question or topic of a given chapter is um, and hopefully take some away some of the uh, intimidation that comes with something you know like number theory that uh, might be off-putting. I remember when I did that Sunday school class that uh, Sam talked about um, 
after the first week, that was one of the feed pieces of feedback that I got was I wasn't expecting there to be any math. <laughs> right. Right, right. There's there's no math in church. There's no math in church. Just there's like no math in science. Why Unless... are we why are we talking numbers? Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, you know, theology can also be very hard to crack. And I think, you know, this book can can reach an audience that looks at theology or hears theology and just hears noise or, you know, this, you know, the, the same the same things that, you know. I didn't know that, you know, no one told me there was going to be God talk in this book, you know, and reach an audience in that way that might be more familiar that, you know, with science and the language of science and language of biology and so on, than they would be the language of faith and, the, and theology. Yeah, that's certainly the hope. Yeah, that's certainly the hope. This, I, I was trying to think about why I like your book so much and why other books that try to take and why I, why I dislike other books that try to take sort of like all the things they see in the world and, and use it as a proof for God. Right. Cause I don't think that's what your book does. Uh, when I read your stuff, right. It's, I think it's like, Hey, here's this thing, uh, how we understand God. Right. But then we also see stuff like this uh, in the world. And so we can explain it in, in this sort of way. Right. That you see, like the the sometimes in the midst of theology, if we talk about God, it gets really heady and conceptual. But your book takes it to a level that um, uh, becomes um, no. See, this sort of stuff does happen already, right? And so it's not used as sort of you know any sort of proof of God's existence. Just a way to say, look, we know about God, and here's a way to get to go deeper into that understanding. Does that, um, do, that's how I read it. Does that yeah, sound right fair. to you? Or yeah. I wasn't you... looking necessarily to, to prove anything in particular. I don't think that the existence of God is necessarily a, a scientific question. Um, what I always get hung up on with that is I don't know how to turn God off to do the scientific experiment of, what does it look like when God is active and what does it look like when we've turned God off and God isn't working? Um, which is how we do a lot right. of things in science and how we, how we test causation in science right. a lot right. of the time. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's what you said, just looking at things that we see in the world and saying, here's some, here's some patterns. Here's some ideas that we come across that I come across when I read the Bible. And when I think about God and when I think about Jesus, um, and here are some things that I think about when I think about science and when I think about comic books and they all kind of run together in my head. And so maybe, maybe there's something there, or maybe this might be helpful to somebody else who has the same kinds of questions that I've had. Mm -hmm. Well, how about this was, this was something that I've been, was, was thinking about I, a nice section of the book um, that maybe I thought would might be a, a of interest to kind of give an idea of how of how the book how the whole book is um, is one of the chapters is a conspiracy of uh, 
chronometers. And um, you talk about uh, li uh, light and light speed and matter and things like that. But then one of the sections you, you bring in, uh, of all things, you know, how this, how this relates to sin. And I think, you know, that was one of the sections that I just started I, I read best sometimes with a pen in my hand and I just started underlining everything. I'm like, this is a, because it really became, I think to me, a really interesting metaphor for sin and in our life as sin, as something that gives us mass. <laughs> and maybe you can explain, explain how that, you know, say a little bit more about that and um, how how that metaphor worked in your, in your, your thinking. Sure. So I think an intuitive way of thinking about sin or, or to use maybe a less, uh, you know, theological or Christian word, you know, thinking about the good things that we do and the bad things that we do, right. Is to think about it in terms of some kind of accounting balance sheet. Right. And so when I do good things, that's a positive asset or positive revenue, and when I do bad things, that's some kind of debit or, um, you know, payment or something that, you know, creates a, a debt. Um, and certainly the language of, of debt is in the Bible when it comes to sin. And so I don't want to, you know, completely discount that. Um, but I think it can be sometimes helpful to uh, come, at, come at a topic from multiple perspectives and to get a, a more rounded uh, way of thinking about it. Um, and just also in general, that's how we're used to our intuition of, of how numbers work and how the things that we encounter on a, on a daily basis uh, tend to work linearly like that. You add, you subtract, things get bigger, things get smaller in a sort of linear fashion. Um, but it turns out one of the interesting things that we've learned um, through uh, the work of Einstein in special relativity, um, so for a long time we thought that the speed of light was infinite because it seems to go so fast that maybe it's infinite and all other uh, speed is uh, relative to that and constant. But it turns out that it's actually uh, the speed of light is finite and uh, is constant no matter how uh, you're moving relative to the light, you will always measure the speed of light to be the same. So, uh, in contrast, like if you're, you know, if you're driving on the highway and you uh, look at, you try to measure the, the speed of the car next to you, you're not going to get the same answer as the speedometer says, because the speedometer is measuring the speed of the car relative to the road. And it's going to say something like 60 miles an hour. But if you're going at 65, you're going to say that that car is going negative five miles an hour. Or if, or if you're going 55, you say that car is going five miles an hour. That's why the cops, when they're you know, measuring your speed, they're standing still on the, on the side of the road. Otherwise, the radar gun wouldn't give you a good, accurate speed measurement. Um, but that's not the way that light works. Um, if you speed up, you're still going to measure uh, the speed of light the same, no matter how fast you're traveling relative to the speed of light. Right. Just, just as a right, if, if your car is going 299 thousand nine hundred ninety nine kilometers per second and you turn on your uh headlights it's not that the beam of light goes out Correct. at one kilometer per second it still yeah. goes out at three hundred thousand kilometers right. per second and that's yeah so and that's where the that's as a where mind the title comes in the conspiracy of chronometers because it's almost as if 
all of our rulers and uh, stopwatches that we might use to measure the distance and time to then uh, measure the speed of light are adjusting in terms of their length and how fast or slow they tick off seconds to make sure that the speed of light is always a constant. Um, and so that, you know, as a consequence of that, it seems like as you go faster, um, lengths change uh, in, in terms of how, how long uh, an inch uh, seems to be and how long a second, not every, not every second that ticks by will uh, be the same, seem the same for all observers. And another consequence of that is that the uh, mass of an object won't be measured the same so that um, basically so that momentum is still conserved. Uh, and so as you travel faster, if you have mass and you travel closer and closer to the speed of light or faster and faster, uh, it becomes harder and harder to accelerate. You can't just keep accelerating linearly. Um, and in fact, you can't, it would take an infinite amount of energy to accelerate uh, something with mass up to the speed of light. And so that's kind of where my uh, connection to sin kind of came in that rather than thinking about sin as this thing where I can always, I can always do something to balance it out. I can always take it away. I can always add more. Um, and it just sort of adds or subtracts uh, however I need to. And that there's this idea that once you've, once you've accumulated sin, you can never, um, that, that holds you back in some sense. You can never sort of accelerate to the, the level of righteousness that uh, God who hasn't sinned or Jesus who hasn't sinned can obtain. Um, and so that's where the connection uh, to the idea that Jesus being the light of the world and being, uh, you know, uh, in Christian teaching, um, a person who, who was without sin, um, he sort of provides that, that constant thing that is always uh, the same, no matter how we measure it. And all of our righteousness or, or morality or goodness is measured uh, relative to that. Which, which I think one of the things that you pointed out was that, um, you know, that people, that's, you know, one of the, the, the criticisms or uh, things that's pointed out is, you know, by uh, critics of Christianity or religion in general is that, you know, there are people who don't believe in the Bible or are not religious at all, you know, who are atheists, who in some ways seem that their righteousness approaches or surpasses the righteousness of some Christians. And you wrote how, well, you know, that could be, you know, the case, but in, in any case, it's not, it, it's not that your righteousness in some way is going to push you past that limit of, uh, of, of your sin, basically that's holding you, that, that is holding you back and it's so it's it's that same kind of um conception that we think that there is a linear progression and that this one group is going to kind of turn away while another group is going to continually advance you know because one one group is more is more righteous than another group you know whether it be christians or or atheists or you know buddhists whatever but in the long run you know, when you look at the you know tra trajectory of righteousness, if you want to call it that, you know, 
everyone is going to approach a limit and that limit is always going to be there regardless. And I thought that was like a good kind of pointing out of um, that, you know, that, that sin in, in, in the metaphor and the kind of the common language of, you know, the good works are necessary, but they are not sufficient. It's kind of the, the good works give you, I guess it would be that good works give you momentum, um, but they are not, that momentum is not enough to give you enough speed to reach absolute speed, yeah. I guess. Yeah, and I think it also kind of speaks to the idea. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a good way of, of summarizing it. And I think it also speaks to that sort of relativ, relativism idea that, well, I don't have to run faster than the bear. I just have to run faster than you, um, right? That, that as long as I'm doing, right. as long as there are people who I am more moral than, I'll be fine. Um, but that's not the the Christian perspective on on righteousness or morality. the The standard that we're all held up against is is Jesus, and we all fall short of that standard. And by how much kind of becomes an irrelevant question. Mm-hmm. So. I I appreciate anything that gets us away of uh, of thinking um, of sin as sort of this just divine accounting uh, mechanism, right? Um, we, and when we start talking about light and we talk about relativity and stuff, right? Everything de- everything depends upon frame of reference, right? Because where is the observer and how does that look like? So. Um, where is the where is the divine frame of reference? Is it Jesus? Is that is that sort of? I think you sort of just alluded to that. Made me think of that. But um, you know, how do we? Are we capable, right, uh, from one to another, looking at each other and evaluating those, or are we just out because we're all in different frames of reference? Does that? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Um, you know, so and that may be where. The, the limits of the, you know, using physics, uh, we might run into uh, that limit as an analogy, right? because in special relativity, one of the conclusions is that there really is no um, privileged or, uh, you know, God frame of reference by which we can say this is, this is the actual speed that things are happening. And yeah, you know, there may be these relative frames of reference, and you, you know, you may get different answers depending on, on your local frame of reference, but there's still some absolute reference, you know, frame that we can go to, that we can appeal to for uh, the, the true answer. Um, because when it comes to actual physical quantities of, of motion and energy and so forth, there is no, there is no true answer. There is no point of reference that we, we can stand or, or from which we can observe and say, that's the, that's the correct answer. But I think we do have some notion of that in, you know, when we move into the theolo- theological frame, you know, at least from a Christian perspective, that, that there is uh, God's point of view that is, you know, the point of view of record, right? And that it's God's perspective on on us that is what matters. Um, but even even if that's a point where the analogy breaks down, it's still the analogy is giving us kind of a language to talk about how our theology is similar and how our theology is different. And I think that can still be helpful for understanding what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think definitely in terms of, you know, understanding God as the 
center of the, the center of reference. I mean, that's some of the mystics, you know, would refer to God as the, the center. And in the same way of you know, like dealing with, with relativity, relativity, you know, when we all have our perspectives, you know, what we see, we see things moving on earth and we relate them to our sense of rest, you know, like I'm, I'm standing still in that car is moving 55 miles an hour, but not accounting for the fact that the earth is moving how fast in, you know, on its, on its axis and rotating around the sun at a certain speed. And the sun is, is moving around in our galaxy at a certain speed and our galaxy is hurtling through the universe at a certain speed, you know, and all of those things don't even figure into our experience of, of life, but at the same, but thinking of God as, as the center from which all of those things are related to is a really interesting, interesting metaphor in terms of just understanding, you know, like our own, um, limitations in, in understanding each other and understanding ourselves and what are, what are we getting our bearings? Yeah. Or, or, you know, thinking if the language or the idea of a center is unhelpful, you know, another thing that comes from talking about relativity is the idea that once we move to a fixed speed of light, we actually get a different geometry for thinking about space and time. Um, That's what they call a hyperbolic geometry, which is, um, if you've ever seen, there's some M.C. Escher uh, woodcuts of different shapes that get smaller. They're, you know, it's a circular image. And uh, one of the more popular ones has basically angels and, and demons, and they're, they're interlocking. And they get, they get smaller and smaller as we move out to the edges. And they're actually, you know, they're all meant to be the same size. But when you project the hyperbolic geometry onto that flat circle, it looks like they're getting smaller and smaller as you get out to the edges. Um, and that's a very different geometry than the, the one that we usually are used to if we take, you know, high school geometry class and, you, you know, the Cartesian coordinates of basically just thinking of a flat piece of paper that it just extends out in all directions, a piece of graph paper, whatever, that extends out in all directions and everything's even and equal um, out in all directions. But actually that doesn't seem to be the geometry of the, the world that we live in. It has this more uh, hyperbolic geometry or, or the, the <clears throat> geometry of, of velocities and, and so forth uh, occupies that kind of geometry. And so it's not even just, it's not about where's the center or where's the frame of reference, but it's actually just the, the whole um, structure of the world that we live in is defined by, um, by that choice of, of, constant by that choice of using the speed of light as a constant or if we're talking theologically by using god or jesus as our as our defining constant uh from which everything else follows yeah i think the 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 notion of center becomes really weird because when you start to work in notions of cosmology right and and the the big bang right there's it's there's not really a the ability to talk about a center because it's all the center um, when the universe starts as a point it wherever you are seems more like yeah, everything's right. rushing There's away this, from the center yeah, that you're at already um, but if you if, if you if translate yourself over you know a several several hundred light years everything's going out from that point 
Yeah, that you know, that's same, an interesting same... conversation. The whole idea, you know, so the one of the big things people talk to and talk about, like Galileo and Copernicus, and oh, you know, the, the Earth isn't the center of the the solar system; it's the sun, and and so all of a sudden the Earth has moved out from the, the middle of the cosmos, and then you know, even worse, we're you know one of uh, many stars in a galaxy, and we're not even in the center of that galaxy, and that ga- galaxy isn't in the center of anything in particular, and so. There's a way of framing the development of astronomy and, and uh, astrophysics and cosmology as a way of moving, you know, humans and Earth from the center of the universe to this sort of marginal position. Um, but at the same time, we've actually kind of come all the way back around, just like you described. Where now, if you think about Big Bang cosmology and you think about the expanding universe and the, the universe being that which we can see because the light has reached us. Um, then we actually kind of are in the in the center of the universe. It's just that we don't have any particularly good reason for thinking that the universe is only that which we can see. But to the extent that we can see anything or the, the universe that we can experience, we are technically in the middle of it. Um, yeah. I, exactly. Other than some local perturbations, everything is uh, hurtling away from us. So some stuff around us that, that isn't quite the same, but I, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's interesting. I, I, as you were talking, I realized, oh yeah, we're suddenly back to being at the center sort of, if we're all at the center, maybe it's like the Incredibles. If we're all at the center, then no <laughs> one's at the center. Right. And just like you said, you know, if you, if we could somehow translate ourselves to a, you know, a planet in the Andromeda galaxy, we would we would come to the exact same conclusion. Yeah, um, exactly. Let, can I ask you a question? Because um, one of the things uh, I always find it interesting because it, it's something that geeks take for granted in this whole notion of the multiverse, right? And I'm sorry, I didn't mm-hmm. get to it yet. If there's a chapter in there where you talk about the multiverse, um, parables, uh, parables from the multiverse, right? Uh, your subtitle. Um, well, it's it, right. Faith across the multiverse is right there. Faith the across the multiverse. Ah, right. I'm sorry. Parables from modern science. Faith across the multiverse. So um, it, it is interesting. Um, many of us take for granted sort of at least as a as a sort of a conceptual framework. Like if there were m- multiple universes that all existed, that, you know, all slightly one from the other, you know, until you go on to something, you know, is completely foreign uh, from what we have. Right. But a lot of times we think about it as like, well, if I make a decision to go left here, there's another universe where I made the decision to go right. Right. And so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, it, it encompasses all possibilities. Right. Which I think in some ways is really cool from a geek sort of conceptual standpoint. But when we talk about universe, right. Sort of this one truth, right. This one existence, that what 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 is the what is the draw to this the, the do you think about sort of this whole discussion of multiverse um versus one existence that's set before us so that's a that's a great question um so there's a couple of different ideas of what the multiverse is or there's a there's a couple of different ways that you can come to a concept of the multiverse one of them is from trying to understand what quantum physics is telling us um, and whether, you know, 
when we observe an event happening at the subatomic level, or we make a measurement at the, at the subatomic level, and something goes from uh, existing in a collection of possibilities to one specific state that we have measured or observed, um, is that because there's one true universe and we've, we've made a choice? Or is that because all the different possible ways that measurement or observation could have fallen out occurred in a bunch of different universes? And so the, this collection of universes where all the different things played out um, is an ever-expanding multiverse. That's one way of thinking about the multiverse. And so it's appealing because it helps resolve some of the philosophical questions that arise from quantum physics. And uh, and, not, and even not just philosophical questions, but scientific questions of well, what it does exactly mean to make a measurement or make an observation um, at, a, at a subatomic level and to transition from this sort of quantum superposition way of understanding uh, and, uh, you know, a particle or so, something to this more classical, you know, binary state option. Right. Um, right. Uh, so that's, so that's one possibility. Another concept of the multiverse comes from, um, uh, an addition to Bing bang cosmology, um, called inflation or th- this idea that, um, when the universe expanded from that little point that you were talking about, it didn't, it hasn't been expanding uniformly, um, that it expanded very rapidly over a very short period of time. Um, whether that actually happened, um, is still kind of an interesting question. We thought we had seen observational evidence that, that really solidly confirmed, um, the inflammation, uh, the inflation model. Um, sorry, my, biology and infectious disease uh, <laughs> language flipped in there um, in, inflation cosmology um, but uh, but then we're not so sure that, that that those measurements actually were what we thought we were so that's still kind of an open question um, and so one of the consequences of, of that inflation model though the mathematics of it is that there will always be these these pockets of inflation and so you have all kinds of different universes kind of popping up from these tiny little pockets. Um, and they might have different properties. And so, right. uh, the, you know, so the physics might be different. And so I think that's one of the, one of the more appealing versions of the multiverse these days is it answers the question, why is the world the way that it is? Um, because there are certain things in physics that we just kind of have to accept at this point as observational realities, um, certain constants, certain features of electrons and gravitational strength and hey. so forth. Don't tell me what I have to believe. <laughs> Come on. Well, I don't have to accept anything. Fair, no, fair enough. No, I mean you're right. But <laughs> we don't. We don't have any way of deriving those from some nice equation. If if we're gonna do right. physics, we just have to say we've observed this value, and we go forward from there, and that's the world that we live in. Um, but we don't know. We don't have a good answer for why it's that number and not you know twice as big or half as big. Yeah. Why isn't the speed of light 10, 10 miles per hour? Sure. Um, and so because of right. And so one, one possible answer to that question is, well, there's a multiverse out there. And in one version, it is 10 miles an hour. And we just happen to live in the one that is um, three times 10 to the eighth meters per second. Um, I, I wish I could have visited that one before my one physics final. Right. That, that, would, have been, that would have been helpful. But yeah. Um, and so then it also. That was literally a question. What happens if it's 30 miles oh, nice. an hour? You know. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a great question. It was just. For freshman in college, it was it was rough <laughs> to get my brain around. So, cool in an exam. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Um, would that mean that you'd have more time to answer the question or less time to answer the question? <laughs> that is a really, that is a great, no, I didn't, I didn't have any more time um, for, I was not in that frame. Right, of exactly. Reference. But yeah, so, and that, that also gets us around questions of, well, why is the universe such that life can exist? Because, you know, based on the math that we have that describes the universe, if, you know, gravity was stronger or weaker or the electron was, you know, more that the electrical charge of electron was stronger or weaker, that life as we know it wouldn't, wouldn't come together. Uh, and so well, if we can just answer that question, well, we just happen to live in one of the, the universes in the multiverse where the numbers all worked out that way, then uh, we resolve that question, we can move on. But we don't actually know uh, whether, whether such an ensemble of, of universes is a physical reality or just a consequence of, of a certain mathematical model that we have that, that describes uh, some of the observations that we do see with respect to you know, yeah. cosmology and, and inflation and so forth. And then, I, you know, there's also just the, the intellectual yeah, appeal of, oh, imagining what, what life could be like in different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like the DC. Exactly. Universe. What if, yeah. What, and what earth, what earth are you on? Exactly. I'm on earth one. Well, it's so. interesting too. I've been reading Andy's book along with uh, kind of simultaneously the book, uh, the novel, um, The Long Earth which I think if I remember the name of the the author, right, it's T- Terry Pratchett, but it's the same author that wrote the uh, Ringworld series. And it's about um, multiverses basically and finding the ability to travel between them and th- this sort of uh, kind of new pioneering m- mentality around going to each one of these alternate earths um either you know east or west is sort of an arbitrary you know way of way that they that they did it and what are each one of these earths like and what can you know what can we do there and what does the 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 found the finding of these alternate earths mean and the ability to travel between them fairly easily uh, using a potato <laughs> and a little device is an interesting little thing. Uh, it, this is Discworld. Discworld it's, the, right? it's not Discworld. It's the same author as Discworld. Um, yeah, Terry yeah, that's Pratchett. Terry Pratchett. Yeah, it's the Ringworld is okay. Larry. Nathan. I think he, I think he may have co-written this though. Okay, anyway, because I know it's Terry Pratchett. Um, but anyway, it's like. What is not only do what are these do these universes or these worlds mean for, you know in and of themselves? Or what do how do they what does that mean about our Earth and our world and 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 kind of the the changes that happen there and that one of the things that you find is that there's only humans on our one Earth. The other, the other, you know, uh, parallel Earths don't have. There are lots of other creatures and animals that are like other things, like crocodile. It, one of the things that's kind of constantly going through is that there's crocodiles on all of them, 
<laughs> and if, in some way, shape, or form, there's there's crocodiles on all of them that eat whatever there you know there are. Um, but coastlines are different. Um, and how you know what are those little small like little small things that will change dramatically over the over the, the centuries and eons over time and seeing those things played out um and it it anyway it's just that just kind of popped in my mind is that's a you know an interesting re- book to read kind of alongside this one and talking about you know the, the multiverse and what is you know what does it mean to exist in a multiverse basically And I think that that brings up an interesting uh, point about when we think about the multiverse and, you know, since it has been given this sort of scientific credibility um, from different directions, the one thing that we have to be careful about is that none of the scientific theories about a multiverse guarantee that there's a universe out there that exists that has whatever combination of features or properties you might imagine there to be. Um, And so it doesn't necessarily follow that, oh, nothing, you know, none of our choices really matter or whatever, because there's a, there's another universe out there where everything is completely the opposite of what I do here. And so it's all kind of meaningless. Um, you know, apart from the fact that we only have this universe to operate in, um, there's just the reality that even if, even if some of this, uh, speculative physics about multiverses turns out to be a true description of reality, it doesn't, doesn't guarantee that, um, like I said, that all combinations are, are possible um, because, because things are heavily contingent and right. interconnected and, and we don't have a good idea of how the, you know, these changes would, uh, would ripple and, and affect each other. Um, and then there's also the possibility, you know, well, if, if this is the universe where we all believe in Jesus, you know, where people believe in Jesus, there's another universe out there where, you know, Christianity never took off and, and so forth. Um, but that also, you know, negates the possibility of, you know, God directly intervening to make sure that in every universe of the multiverse, there is uh, some form of incarnation and, and uh, redemptive salvation. Maybe, maybe there's a, there's a, maybe there's a, a universe out there that has intelligent life that never did sin. And if that's the case, do they need Jesus? And, how does the right. incarnation now we're play out in that? Anyway, the space that, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, the the Thomas Paine problem in in uh, writ large here across multiverses. The so you know, it's um, yeah, it, it it's a little bit mind bending as we sort of move into those uh, scenarios to start to think through that right um i do think i do think you're right it does give us some senses well th- there are there are places where the laws of physics might be uh might be different uh, and therefore then never uh, life never arose out of that um as you said and uh so it can be very different but it does i mean it does uh, the multiverse in a very specific way has a really sort of special place in in sort of uh, comic books or um, science fiction type uh, settings or, uh, or some, even some fantasy settings. So um, 
I'm always I'm always amazed sometimes. I mean, it's great to sort of think through different sort of realities, but um well, and I think too like the idea of a, a multiverse without necessarily thinking of it as a multiverse, you know, here in our own experience, you know, is helpful in terms of well, what would happen if I did this? And giving you ideas about, you know, why am I making the choices that I make? Um, and can I come back from the choices that I make? You know, are these are these choices, um, you know, are the things that I do setting me on this irrevocable path that I can't deviate from? You know, if if I go one way, I'm always going that way. If I go this other way, I'm always going, in, you know, in terms of, you know, like a very rigid determinism to, well, what would happen if things were different in my life? Um, that's actually something yeah. that I kind of try and, you know, in, in my line of work, you know, oddly, you know, oddly enough, we're moving from, you know, <laughs> theoretical physics to uh, pastoral counseling. But, you know, there's lots of people that I work with that are, you know, they think, I, there are there are no choices left in my life, and why are things the way they are? And I can't do anything about them. And that is a mm. really rough place right. to be. And in terms of thinking about, well, why why are things the way they are? Why did God make the things happen the way that they are? And well, God is God, and I can't do anything about it. So I'm just going to you know, I guess, keep trudging down the path that I'm on. Whereas thinking about the universe, even the universe that we live in as one of options and things where like one of the, you know, one of the, the other chapters that Andy you know, wrote about in terms of, you know, that, you know, we are in some ways in a, you know, a self-correcting system and that God is, a, is a, uh, I don't want to take too long because that's going to whole other, our conversation, but you know, God is a, as a strange attractor that even if we deviate from the norm or from the path that we're on, there is something that draws us back. And in that way, you know, that, that there is nothing that is ever lost in that, in that system. Um, I think that can be something that a lot of people can, can benefit from, you know, understanding and, feeling that, you know, the world is not necessarily a closed system of uh, gains and losses, but that the world can be a place where change can happen and change could happen, you know, to them in, in their life and that, you know, that there are other possibilities other than what it's right in front of them. I think that, I think that's really fair. Um, if, if you, exi if you, uh, live in a world where everything is highly determined, you know, it just, just flat out deterministic. Uh, everything is laid out for you and, and yeah, there's no, there's no possibility to bump you out of that unless, you know, um, unless that's in the, is in the, right. uh, is in the numbers for you. So, um, yeah, I think, I think there is something about the notion of uh, having a, possibilities out in front of us and uh, the ability to change 
uh, where we are is uh, wrapped up in some sort right. of hope that we have. And I think even to, to borrow from the title, you know, faith across the multiverse, you know, this universe doesn't be the only, doesn't need to be the only one where faith exists. And that regardless of circumstances and changes and things that, you know, if you can imagine a, a universe where things are different, where, you know, things have gone differently, you know, faith can still be there. It's not something that is just contained yeah. to my present circumstances and what I see around me. It's that if things, you know, even if things are different, you know, and in a whole, in a situation that I don't understand a different context, you know, faith can still exist and be there. So the, the title is in cool. itself a little, little could easily be a sermon at Andy. You Thanks. Did a good job. I had some help with from the publisher <laughs> with the title. To give proper credit where credit is due. <laughs> well, there we go. Well, that's that's really that's really uh, kind of part of their thing, right? Because titles are hard. They are, and yeah, it's rare that uh, one one thing I've learned in my uh, forays into writing is that you rarely get to pick the title of anything that uh, gets published unless you're publishing it yourself. Um. Yeah, and, and then it's probably not as good as what someone else would make it. But yeah, they are maybe. they are tricky. Yeah. Anything else that you want to lift up, Andy, about this uh, before we close out? Um, I I will say I, again, I'm really loving the book, uh, and it's uh, really cool. But uh, I want to give you sort of last word about the book. Um, anything that you think uh, folks should know about it. Yeah, I, I think that that's a good place to land. I, th I think the idea that uh, that we have the opportunity to, to make choices and that faith might look different for different people and being able to express our faith in different ways um, so that it will make sense to different kinds of people um, and that it can be expressed in, in you know, a multiverse of of ways and still be somehow faithful, still somehow come back to um, a common concept of, of God. And uh, as, you know, as realized in uh, the person of Jesus uh, and to, to bring all that abstract stuff uh, into, into some kind of concrete form um, in, in the person of Jesus and in the, in the way that we interact with each other. Um, yeah. If, if the book can help uh, folks, see those those questions in a new way or or to see those possibilities where where they might not have seen them before uh, then that would be really fantastic and uh, so i hope that that it does that for some for people and it's going to be awesome. it's going to be available awesome. on amazon it's on pre-order on amazon i've seen um and when is it when is the uh delivery date i guess is it available now i guess for pre-order or is it being delivered ah so now we get into the the fun rabbit hole of how do you actually buy yes. this book um <laughs> and how how does how does publishing with a small publisher differ from being jk rowling and having 100 copies of your harry potter book on the tables of every barnes and noble when it uh comes out of yeah midnight. what was your signing bonus so for yeah, the book, book right yeah <laughs> so the book is available <laughs> the book is available right now 
Um, I don't know, and neither does uh, the Hendrickson, the publisher, know exactly why Amazon thinks it doesn't come out until August 30th. Yeah. But as of as of recording, that is what Amazon is saying, and so they're not going to ship it to you if you order it from Amazon until after the 30th of August. But uh, if you go to barnesandnoble.com or if you go to uh, christianbook.com, they are both shipping it now. And so if you order it there, you should get, uh, you know, you should get it shipped in whatever their terms are. Um, it's also starting to pop up in uh, local stores. Not a lot. You know, it depends on the local store deciding that they want to take a chance on it. Um, so if they don't have it there, you can certainly ask for it by name and they can order it. And again, you know, it's available for, for shipping to them. And then it'll be however long, you know, a few days a week, um, depending on the country, where you are in the country and all that good stuff. Um, but yes, and it is available now, but not evenly distributed. And there will be, uh, there will be an ebook version as well. Um, but I don't have an exact date for that either, but, uh, you can check all the usual places where they sell ebooks and, uh, should be by the end of the summer, but I don't have an exact date for that. The publishing world as Byzantine sometimes as uh, life in the church. Very nice. So, but I, I do think, again, I think it was, it's a good book. I think folks uh, who are interested in these sort of questions, which is probably a good uh, percentage of our, uh, of our listeners, uh, I think would really enjoy it. So um, that's, that's really awesome. So we get to the time when we get to uh, what are you geeking out about? Uh, Andy, what are you geeking out about? Well, uh, so uh, as you probably figured out from following me on Twitter, one of my favorite uh, comic book characters is Jamie Madrox, the multiple man from the, <laughs> I wondered if that was going to be it. I, I, if I had to bet, I, wasn't I was and hoping that was it. Yeah. After, after <laughs> uh, a few years of being on the shelf, uh, he is back in his own uh, comic book miniseries. The first issue came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, the second one, I think next week. Uh, and so that is just really exciting to have, uh, have my favorite X-Men character back in his own, uh, in his own series. And, you know, based on the first issue, we're dealing with, multiverses and time travel and uh you know science fiction craziness and uh it's it was a lot of fun i will own to the fact that knowing uh, not just you but uh, one of my uh uh one of my best friends growing up probably my single singular best friend growing up uh he uh, he was a he, he had told me about multiple man i don't know how many years ago um, and so I actually, between your tweets and, and, uh, uh, Mike's, uh, comments to me long ago, I picked up, uh, multiple man this week. Awesome. So yeah, looking forward to it. So what, what is it about multiple man that, that why, why is he a favorite so, for you? He uh, was prominent in uh, Peter David's X Factor when I was a teenager and first getting into X-Men comics, there was this uh, brand new Peter David had just come on to writing the book X Factor. He brought in a brand new lineup, uh, including Madrox and it, the characters really clicked. He had a you know sense of humor that I enjoyed and his 
perspective on dealing with the complexities of life. And, you know, so his, so his shtick is that he can create multiple copies of himself. Um, and one of the things that's evolved over time is that those different copies manifest different sides of his personality, different aspects of his thought process. And so he can kind of think himself or talk himself, you know, into a, into a circle, um, just looking at things from all different angles. And that really, uh, that really resonated with me. Um, so, it, you know, it, he kind of came along at a formative time in my teenage years, um, then went away for a while. And then Peter David came back to X Factor uh, in the early 2000s um, and kind of, you know, got into a, a little bit deeper investigation of that character in particular um, when I was in my early 20s. And again, it just kind of really struck a chord that um, that way of looking at the character is having all these different perspectives and being paralyzed by that a lot of the time because you just couldn't you could see things from so many different perspectives that he couldn't figure out which one was the most helpful one to to use um <laughs> you know that just again really connected with where i was at that time um yeah and you know and he's just a really fun character as well and, and uh P you know peter david who has written most of his appearances um you know has a has a sense of humor that i enjoy and uh so yeah it, it all just kind of clicked nice Nice. Sam, how about you? I've been this it's been a really good month for a lot of stuff. I mean, with Ant-Man and the Wasp coming out, um I finally got to see that uh, a few days ago with my son and no spoilers. Yeah. Well, even though I was it's not a spoiler because it's in the trailer, but I mean there's there's moments where like you can't pick up a building even though it shrunk down to the size of a suitcase because of the law of conversation conservation of mass and that's not but then at the same time it's a movie and you just need to be fun and enjoy it so um well and they established in the first movie that pym's technique whatever it is adjusts the density of of mass and not just the that's true i uh, forgot that i didn't they should you know, they so should have right, just make more compact I, it, it removes those elements, I guess, from it doesn't just shrink them down. It, it removes those elements anyway. But that was a, that was I mean, a very he carried a movie. tank on his keychain. Yeah, it's true. I forgot that, but it's fun. It was a it was a nice fun movie. But um, the thing I have really kind of been been geeking out about is I've re I've rediscovered BattleBots, um, which is that it's it's a TV show if you're not familiar with it where people make these um fighting robots put them in a big like plexiglass cage and they fight till one of them stops moving and i really enjoy it i've kind of since i've rediscovered it it's it's actually been they've been doing this for well over 10 years and the amount of creativity now that people use in making these things is really is really something and just to see how people are using you know physics in interesting ways um and uh kind of working working around with new ideas around like formerly it used to be you know you make your robot as armor plated as you possibly can make it as heavy as it possibly can be and uh so it can take the the, the hits of other things um and someone's created this robot called huge that's basically two big wheels with a piece in the middle and like a spinning bar but it looks like the entire thing was 3d printed 
And when something hits it, it's, it springs, it bounces. And so it doesn't have that kind of, you're, you know, this is something that's going to take a lot of damage just by, by bouncing away from it rather than being able to take the damage that's being inflicted upon it. And it just ruins things. It's one of these things like that's going to, you look at it and like, that's going to get tossed in about three seconds. And meanwhile, it chops up other robots that you think are going to completely destroy it because it kind of does sort of a robot jujitsu in, in the whole thing. But that's a lot of fun. But you, you, you do realize, Sam, that one day our machine overlords will pull that footage and use it in the trial for crimes against uh, <laughs> against robots that humans have per- perpetuated against against. Well, them. I'm waiting for what was it L3 to come out and start, you know, crying for, you know, the the freedom of the, you know. <laughs> well, indeed. So anyway, that needs that, that yeah. needs to be a thing in the audience. Someone needs to come out dressed up as L3 and start. I just want you to know, I'm going to blame you. I'm going to blame you when we go, when humanity goes on trial for crimes against robots. I'll be like Davros. (laughs) That's what I'm hoping at least. That's, well, that's a sad thing to hope for. I'm, that's just thinking about that. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) What about you? What are you geeking out? I have been, yeah, I have been, uh, I, so I went um I went to uh, Portland, Oregon uh in uh late June um for a campus ministry conference um uh, campus ministry folk from the ELCA sort of across the country gather annually at a uh a conference to uh mainly just to hang out with each other but also to do some other stuff but um so we were in uh being in Portland there Portland has a uh bookstore called Powell's City of Books. It takes up an entire city block, has several floors. Um it's it is one of the greatest bookstores I've ever been in. Um and their science fiction fantasy section had I mean, it would. It, I could have. I could have stayed in there a full eight hours, um, just looking at every title, going through everything. Uh, I was with another campus pastor who really was not really thrilled about going to a bookstore, which I don't quite understand. But okay, um, but uh, went through some stuff and and found a book that I had never uh, never read, uh, never even seen. Is this book called The Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe, and it was in sort of this. Uh, fantasy masterworks sort of title, and it had good little blurbs from really great authors. And uh, so I picked it up, and I'm not entirely sure that it's. I don't know what I feel about it yet. I'm I'm the first. Uh, there's two volumes. I only picked up the first volume, and uh, I'm not even halfway through that. It's their big meaty volumes and um has two parts in it and uh i uh, 
I'm into it though. I, I'm I'm sticking with it. I haven't got, reached the point where I'm going, what the heck is this? But it's the story of a Severian who is a torturer in some future world setting where humanity has left Earth and now they're they're in sort of this uh, um, almost medieval setting again, but it's it's still futuristic. And someone called it um, science fantasy, and um, it's it's been really interesting. Uh, read. I, I, I'm I'm hoping that I get to a point where I finally get it. It's all written in the first person, so it's it's kind of like a memoir or like he's writing stuff down recounting things in his life and how he was exiled from his guild and all this sort of stuff. So um, it's, it's fascinating. Not sure I like it yet, but I'm, I'm committed to it. So (laughs) I'm in, uh, yeah, I can't say that I'm enjoying it yet, but I can't put it down either. So I don't know what that says about me. So, Anyway, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, if uh, p- please interact with us, I'm going to give the spiel that I have heard a thousand times on other podcasts. That if you uh, if you like this, if you could leave a um, uh, a review uh, or a uh, um, a rating on iTunes, uh, we would be really thankful because uh, then that helps. Uh, that drives a lot of uh, recommendations and traffic and uh, sort of bumps us up on lists. I uh, would really appreciate that if you could do that. Um, you can uh, interact with us on uh, Facebook at Church of the Geek uh, or on Twitter at Geek Church. If you have an idea uh, for um, something that we sh- you think we should do, throw it out there. Let's... Uh, talk a bit about it and uh maybe even if you want to be on it you can let us know um so uh those are the places to connect with us you can see i reach am also me on twitter Brian underscore o underscore at, Bennett at, at uh, rev s uh, on twitter rev and um, sam uh, how, how can folks get a hold of you and andy if you have anything that you want to toss out in terms of social media feel go right ahead Awesome. Yeah, like where are you writing? What? Uh, give us the name of your book again, uh, and uh, how can folks uh, interact with you if, if they have questions? Sure. So uh, Twitter is probably a good place. I am at Madrox42, <laughs> M-A-D-R-O-X, D-U-P-E. Oh, Madrox. Uh I get yeah, it. I started on Twitter to talk to other comic book folks. Uh, and I, that was a name I had in other various fora. Uh, so I copied it over there so people would know me. And now it feels <laughs> kind of silly because I'm trying to promote other things. But Twitter's silly anyway, so just, we'll roll with just it. embrace it. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it is a silly place. Um, exactly. Um, yeah, I tweet infrequently about these days my book faith across the multiverse and about uh multiple man and other x-men comics um the uh book there's also a website for the book uh faith across the multiverse.com that has you know links to the stores we can buy it it's got the trailer if you want to watch the silly trailer that i put together to tell people about the book 
Um, it has a little bit of a description of what all the different chapters are about, uh, a little bit more background about me. Uh, hopefully over time it will have some more sort of supplemental content, um, videos and interactive widgets to help people understand the science and the math a little bit better. Um, and I also uh, blog for a ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship called Emerging Scholars Network uh, that is specifically intended to help students and early career professionals uh, navigate the world of academia. Uh, so I write about science and Christian faith every Wednesday there. It's uh, blog.emergingscholars.org. Um, there's also lots of other great folks who write there. There's you know several posts go up every week. Uh, and I've been doing that for many years. So there's a whole bunch of back catalog of things if you want to check that out that I've written and then lots of other folks have written too. Um, so yeah, again, that's uh, the emergingscholars.org. And yeah, I think that's all the places to find me. Well, you were also on uh, BioLogos. I occasionally, I a little bit. I occasionally write for BioLogos. They actually just published um, an excerpt from the book the other day. Um, so if you go there, uh, I don't know when this episode will air, um, but if you search for my name and BioLogos, uh, Andy Walsh and BioLogos, you should find it. I have a, you know, I've posted four or five things there now. So I've got an author page and you can find other things that I've written about X-Men and evolutionary biology, Star Wars and evolutionary biology. Um, yeah. Fun stuff. Really fun. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us tonight. And uh, really, um, yeah, really enjoying the book. So um, uh, it, it, we really appreciate you. Yep. Thank uh, you very much, Andy. Uh, thank you guys for inviting me and for having such kind words to say about the book and for reminding me to tell people what the title is. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, everybody. Uh, again, uh, Thanks for listening, and uh, as always, geek be with you. And with your spirit. Mm -hmm.